So, good evening. Can you all hear me okay at the back? So, Sharon congratulated you yesterday for uh, surviving the first 24 hours. So I will congratulate you for surviving the first 48 hours. (laughs) Sometimes the second 24 are harder than the first 24. You never know what's going to happen. I made a note to myself, uh, humbling. And if this practice and this intensive retreat practice is, if anything, humbling. I don't know if you found that experience for yourself. So I came across a cartoon, actually it was pinned to the notice board in the staff room last time I was here last month. And it's taken off of the TV show that I've never seen. Uh, But the TV show is So You Think You Can Dance. And there's a picture of um, a person on the stage meditating and the three judges looking at him. And the title of the show is, So You Think You Can Meditate. <laughs> so <laughs> we could give that. <laughs> so I'll, I'll you know, show it to you and you can decide for yourselves. <laughs> and after the first 48 hours, I wonder what the judge's ranking would be (laughs) of your performance, (laughs) of the hindrances, of the concentration, of the mindfulness, of the, you know, if we had a meter for the meta, a meta meter, (laughs) you know, where would it be? Like, oh, just getting off of empty, like, a few blips into warm, (laughs) perhaps. Um, So that's why we call this a practice because it takes practice, as we all know. Like anything, like learning to be proficient in any art, in any skill, in any human quality, it takes uh, many, many qualities of time and patience, dedication. Um, Many of the paramis that that, uh, Gina will speak to more tomorrow night, perseverance, patience, resolve, renunciation of other things that pull our attention, um, virya energy, this sort of, this desire, this, this fuel that fuels our practice to, to awaken and to open. So uh, this evening I'm going to talk a little about meta practice, but more specifically talk about what gets in the way since often at this point in the retreat, you're more noticing what gets in the way than the actual quality itself. So it's useful to understand that that's part of the process and to to normalize some of the difficulties or struggles or challenges that you may be going through are just part of the process of both a retreat and also cultivating these heart qualities. So to take a step back, uh, 
to look at the overview of our practice, these wisdom teachings are concerned with the liberation of the mind and the heart. And the practices of mindfulness, Vipassana practice, uh, orient us towards a deepening clarity, openness, insight, understanding of the nature of things, understanding suffering and freedom from suffering. And the, the heart practices, the Brahma Viharas, of which this is one practice amongst four. Brahma Viharas means divine abode, practices of love, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity uh, open and awaken the heart and reestablish that, that lived sense of connection and friendship with all of life. And so the, those qualities and practices work really well together, as you may have been seeing that we don't practice matter in isolation. We don't practice mindfulness in isolation. We need both to fully uh, mature and ripen as a human being and in our practice. And they, they in my experience, they, they at some point come together and co-arise. That mindfulness can be found within metta and metta can be found within mindfulness. That's really the direction of these practices. So when we're cultivating presence and awareness, it's imbued with a softness and with a receptivity and with a kindness. And when we're developing uh, metta and compassion, it also has within it clarity and understanding and wisdom. So um, there's a lovely expression that I believe is attributed to the sixth Zen patriarch who said, awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of awareness, which I think highlights it very much. And maybe you've seen this in your experience uh, yesterday or today, where you um, may have been touched by something, where you were just doing some mindful walking and there was presence and there there was awareness, there was clarity. And in that receptive place that you may have been touched by the sunlight or the gesture of somebody or reflecting about somebody. Um, I know one of the things I love encountering when I'm at IMS, I haven't seen them this year, um, but I've seen them on many, many times when I've been on long retreat here, is um, the ladybirds huddled in a corner in winter. They somehow find their way into the building and stay for quite a long time, sometimes through the winter, it seems. And they huddle in masses. And I'm always really touched in this sometimes very cold, gray, wintry landscape to see this bundle of red life somehow tenaciously hanging on. And it just always opens my heart. At Spirit Rock, we have our equivalent to that is we have uh, swallows who come nest every year. And it's always delightful for me and, uh, to, to, to see people who are on retreat to get really close contact because the, the swallows nest above the bathroom doors, um, which people go in and out of all day. And so we get to see the, the, the little uh, fledglings shivering and shaking and waiting for mama swallow to come with some, some food. And again, it's, 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 and it's something that people report on uh, throughout the retreat of how, how moved and opened and touched by something very simple. 
and I and I see that as the the, the union of that those qualities of presence and kindness, or the heart opening into love in some form. So, as we've spoken to a little, and you may have touched in your experience, the quality of metta has quite a range uh, in terms of its depth and its fullness. It can be, as the Buddha spoke to uh, when he, in, in the metta sutra of uh, cultivating a boundless love that cherishes all life equally. And that's a pretty tall order. How many of you have been residing in boundless love, radiating to all four directions, cherishing all beings everywhere equally as a mother loves her only child? Yeah, I'm not seeing too many. Yeah, I was right there all day, yeah. (laughs) No, we touch it, we may feel that expansiveness. Um, That may become more accessible as as the week goes through. Sometimes it's alluded to as this quality of gentle rain that's really has this quality of equality equality, uh, that really feels that radiance towards all life equally. And we can know that from our experience. At other times, it's a very, mm, mm, uh, a very small, uh, uh, simple gesture of, of friendliness. Someone op- opens a door or takes your plate in the line or something, and you just feel that sense of connection. Or someone does some extra work in, in the work meditation and and you feel that sense of just genuine, easeful goodwill. Or you're standing there in the lunch line and you're seeing the cooks preparing the food and bring the food out and ring the bell. And you just have that sweet moment of gratitude and appreciation that, that, that the service that's done here is, is done with so much love and giving. I came across uh, this... Uh, piece uh, written by a writer, a Christian writer called Henry Nouwen, um, and he was speaking about friendship, and I thought it really uh, spoke to this quality of friendliness in the meta practice. He said, the friend who can be with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face us with the reality of our situation that is the friend who cares. And this is a beautiful expression of a friend, of friendliness, of metta, that's not attached to how things should be, how you should be, and to the outcome of circumstances, but it's just there present to the whole, the whole of it. So I was teaching a metta course recently uh, and a friend, colleague, read this story. And it's a, it's a story that I've heard, and you probably all have heard some allusion to it, but I've never actually he, uh, heard the details of the story. So I'm going to read it, because, again, it speaks to this quality of friendliness. It's called Silent Night by Stanley Weintraub. And it's the story of um, the soldiers uh, during the First World War, during Christmas time. And it says, um, Christmas Eve 1914 of the World War I battlefield of Flanders, the German, British, and French troops facing each other were settling in for a night. A young German soldier began to sing Silent Night. Others joined in. When they'd finished, the British and the French responded with other Christmas carols. Eventually, the men from both sides left their trenches and met in the middle. They shook hands, exchanged gifts, 
and shared pictures of their families, and formal soccer games began in what had been no man's land, and a joint service was held to bury the dead of both sides. The generals, of course, were not pleased with these events. Men who have come to know each other's names and seen each other's families are much less likely to want to kill each other. War seems to require a nameless, faceless enemy. So following that magical night, the men on both sides spent a few days simply firing aimlessly into the sky. Then the war was back in earnest and continued for three more bloody years. So I love that image of these men in very barbaric, brutal conditions who have been conditioned to uh, hate uh, the enemy, the unknown enemy, suddenly come into contact and see the humanness and the commonality and the brotherhood that is shared and uh, those, those common bonds and ties um, diminish, if not eradicate, that capacity to see uh, these people as other and therefore engage in warfare. So, as I mentioned, beginning of retreats, uh, especially the meta practice, is not so easy in the beginning. Um, not so easy to just dwell in this boundless, radiant heart. This is from the poet Rilke, who maybe explains partly why this is so. He says, for one human being to love another, that is perhaps the most difficult of our tasks, the ultimate, the last test and proof, the work for which all other work is but preparation. For one human being to love another, that is perhaps the most difficult of our tasks, the ultimate, last test and proof, the work for which all other work is preparation. So if you're wondering why it's hard to generate much warmth and friendliness to yourself or others, um, this is no easy thing. It sounds easy. All these practices sound simple, but not so easy. So um, as we engage in retreat practice, we're actually engaging in two different, uh, how do I say, uh, the two challenges for want of a better word. One is we're cultivating uh, the factors of meditation, the factors of mindfulness, of energy, of balance, of concentration. So these are all factors of the mind that that we're developing and harmonizing so we can stay tranquil and alert, which don't necessarily come easily. So we're working on that level, and they're also developing the heart. We were looking at the quality of kindness and connection and warmth and empathy. And so as we uh, engage in the practice, we want to get to know, well, what's, what actually is stopping me from just abiding in a warmth and a friendliness and a, and a kindness? Yeah? What, what are the hindrances? What are the obstacles? What gets in the way? How come, I, how come I'm not just sitting in this radiant, loving heart? Anybody have the answer to that? So Rumi says, your task is not to seek love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. Your task is not to seek love, but merely to seek and find all the barriers within yourself that you have built against it. So we're getting to know the barriers. 
And that is that's an important and integral part of the practice as anything else. What are the barriers? What are the obstacles? So something that often happens in the beginning that I notice is there's a certain deflation, a certain disappointment, because we all have expectations. It's impossible not to, in a way. And you sign up for a retreat, for a week-long retreat, you're going to have expectations. And you're going to have, what, positive expectations. You rarely remember that the last retreat you did that was really miserable and a struggle and suffering, going, yeah, I can't wait to do that again. That's really cool. No, we remember those moments of love and connection, the sweetness of the light and the birds, or whatever it was, and or the, the positive association with teachers and the Dharma. And that's what get us, gets us to sign up. And we forget about the sleepiness and the restlessness and the dullness and the, the, the tedium at times. And, and so we, we, uh, we get a little um, almost blindsided. Well, how come it's, what? I didn't expect this. I didn't sign up for this. Or maybe this is your first retreat and you just heard how cool retreats were and they're really you know, opening and deep and alive and everyone's walking around like as if they're in a morgue and like, what am I doing here? Like, what's up with that? So, um, so there's a little, so there can be that sense of, um, yeah, of disappointing, of, of realizing, oh, this is, this is work. These, these are actually work retreats. You know, they're not play retreats. We're not in a spa doing a yoga in Bali. We're, no, <laughs> this is an intensive meditation retreat in Barry. <laughs> <laughs> which we love. It's tranquil and alert. What's not to like? (laughs) So, and leading from the disappointment can be aversion, like, oh no, this sucks. This is boring. I didn't sign up for this. Like, this is hard and like effort and and I suck at it, and I can't do it, and oh no, and then we get, and then we get into the, what's called a multiple hindrance attack, where we start off with aversion, and, and then we get into hating, and you know, there's then this, you know, my room isn't right, and the food isn't quite just how it should be, and where's the coffee, and who's this person called Donna, and all these funny rituals that go on, and uh, what's up with the blankets, and you know, and funny socks, and and the mind goes on a little, little, you know, aversion tirade, which then can can spill into not only is the place not up to scratch, but I can't do this practice. What's up with me? What, how come everyone else looks like they're really serene and happy, and I'm sure they're loving their benefactor, whoever whatever benefactor is, and and I'm like still figuring out what a benefactor is, and if I have any. Or maybe our response to the difficulty is we zone out. So many people talk today about feeling sleepy and dull. And uh, so our response to the boredom and the difficulty is we just go take a nap for four hours, you know, and, or, you know, or just stay in a kind of a dreamscape, which feels more comfortable. And that may trigger another uh, hindrance of wanting, of grasping, we, we start fantasizing. Well, if I can't be in Bali, at least I can fantasize about it. And we start planning our next vacation. And it's not a retreat. It is a, it is a spa holiday in Bali. And 
you know, so we start creating something to, to feel good about, you know, some great meal we're going to have when we leave, and who knows, some fantasy, some romantic fantasy, it's Valentine's, so why not, you know? Or we think, well, why am I not with my Valentine's? How come I'm on a retreat when I'm not with my Valentine? What's up with that? I don't have a Valentine. How come I never have Valentine's on Valentine's? So the doubting mind is, is and, the, and the desire mind, so you see how these, these, these hindrances, they, they interplay. And the net result of all that is we usually feel kind of restless. We feel agitated. We feel ungrounded and unsettled. Our mind's spinning all kinds of reasons and ways why it's not okay just to be here. So I'm going to speak a little more about those aspects, those visitors that come into our practice, which you're very familiar with from your own experience. And uh, from a mindfulness perspective, uh, and from a meditation perspective, none of these things are problematic in themselves if they are seen in awareness. Once something comes into view from the perspective of awareness, then it's just the next thing that we're attentive to, that we're working with, that we're present with. When they're not seen, they can cause a lot of havoc and disruption, and we can find ourselves walking down to downtown Barry to get a pizza because we're bored, and we've, it's driven us out, or we're checking our text messages, which we invite you to hide your cell phones while you're on retreat, so you can't do that. Um, or many other ways that we find ourselves just acting out these tendencies, which we do a lot in our lives. So I was in Costa Rica not so long ago, and I had the pleasure of um, uh, seeing sloths in their natural habitat. And uh, they're really cool. They're really slothful. (laughs) They're really slow. And they hang out all day. It looks like a really good life. And then every now and then they kind of crawl down the tree and they sort of pick around for some food and then they go back up and they hang (laughs) for like 23 hours as far as I could tell. So sometimes that's how it feels like when we're on retreat. (laughs) We're not hanging on the tree. We're sitting on a cushion and and our chin is getting very familiar with our chest. And you know, it speaks to, I think, partly um, how we live our lives, as I was commenting in the groups today, that we, we, we live at a pace, most, most of us live at a pace that is not so sustainable. And so when we come to a retreat that's quiet and slow and uh, still, we feel the backlog of tiredness. We feel the... the, the uh, the sort of karmic effect of the consequences of how we've been living. And one of those is we're usually exhausted, sleep deprived, we've been pushing, driving ourselves, so our body is feeling fatigued. So one of the things that's very nourishing about retreat practice is, we, is the body can actually catch up with itself. It can be unpleasant to feel that, um, but we can learn how to bring a loving, friendly, kind presence to our body which we're not so used to doing. We usually treat the body as a machine that we want to function really well, and we get irritated and frustrated when it doesn't perform, when it gets sick, when it gets tired, 
Yeah, and so we, you know, caffeinate and sugar, whatever it is to keep the thing going. And uh, the net result is a lot of exhaustion. So um, if that's the case for you, which I know it is for many, to be kind with that. You know, it's, it's often it triggers a lot of judgment, like it's something wrong that the body's tired, <laughs> like it, or it's something, it's a mistake that we're sleepy. And the body has these cycles. It ebbs and flows. You'll see through the day. There you'll, there'll be times in the day where you feel really bright and energized and times when you feel dull. Can we bring a kind presence to all of that? And if not, what's happening? What, what's, what, what are we bringing instead? Are we bringing judgment? Are we bringing comparing? Are we bringing uh, frustration? I get to practice with this every time I come to IMS because I come from California or somewhere else and I'm always jet-lagged when I'm here. (laughs) And I'm in this sort of foggy, soupy zone. And um, I get to look at my relationship to sleepiness and to dullness and fogginess and hope that it's not too strong when I come to give the talk, which it sometimes is. (laughs) So one of the ways you'll notice sleepiness manifesting in, in your practice is it starts to, well, it's, it's, one, it's, it's very hard to sustain concentration with the phrases. You know, when I'm sleepy, I can barely get through one phrase and I'm gone somewhere into some la-la land. The other thing that happens is it starts doing weird things to your phrases. And if you notice that, you start saying phrases that are really it starts just convoluting them. So may I be hippie and dippy? May I be <laughs> conceited and balmy? And you know, I've caught myself saying the weirdest phrase. I wrote some of them down. May I be weepy? <laughs> may I be hippie and forceful? May you eat peas? Which was some variation on peace. May you be fretful in hell. And lastly, may I have contempt? (laughs) So these are always an indication that something is awry, that you're you're a little sleepy. So I'd be curious to hear your, your variation on these themes. So one of the, you know obviously we have to work just with the cycles of energy and there are things to do that to, to stimulate and energize the practice you know from sitting upright opening the eyes to standing to walking outside to uh, um, one of the things I like to do is I like to get more creative when I'm really dull and call to mind people who bring energy who inspire me or uh, bring bring some kind of energy. So I'll, I'll and, and, and to really focus on the visual part, if you're a visual person, it doesn't work for everybody, but if you're visual, to um, really uh, uh, be more imaginative with, with the visualization of this person and then being happy or timing when you were together. So bring some kind of emotional, evocative response. Um, Another thing that can contribute to the um, tiredness, uh, and often people will say this, there's a desire um, at times to switch from the 
the, the metta practice to mindfulness because after doing a lot of mindfulness practice, metta can feel very effortful and a lot of will, which it is. You know, you get up in the morning at six in the clock in the morning and you may I be well, may I be happy, and showering, may I be well, may I be And mindfulness seems really peaceful compared to that because you're showering. You know, you're just drinking your tea. You're not saying those phrases, you know, 24-7. So... Um, to pay attention to um, to whether you're becoming a meta factory. So sometimes the practice can be tiring because we're saying the phrases like a factory and as if we're in a competition to see who leaves here with having said the most phrases by Friday. So obviously the point isn't to create a lot of generate a lot of phrases, but to actually. Um, you know, single-pointedly put your intention behind every phrase. So it doesn't the quantity? The quantity isn't important. What's important is the genuineness, the sincerity, the depth of meaning you say each phrase. So what I like to do when I'm when I'm doing meta practice is, uh, uh, which is a, a is I as I as I get quiet. Um, and I tune into a, um, uh, rather than thinking that we're generating something that's outside of ourselves, I connect with the fact that we all have innate kindness and a good heart, and that that's also within me, and they let the phrases come from that place of kindness and, and sincerity that I know is at the core of my being. So rather than adding on to something, creating something, manufacturing something. It's like, no, they're arising out of uh, this innate goodness that we all have. And they, I let them arise slowly. I notice these days that I usually, the phrases, I don't do this consciously, but they sync with my breath. And my breath when I'm sitting is generally quite slow, so the phrases come out very slowly. And so if, if they're to myself, may I be healthy, the phrases rise, rides on the breath of the out-breath. And so that's like, it's almost like it sinks into the body. So the opposite of that, which m- many of you may be experiencing more than the sleepiness, is feeling a little agitated, a little ants in your pantsy, as we say in England, um, where you're feeling restless and your mind's spinning and can't even st- Stick to one person, never mind one phrase. There's a lot of planning mind, there's regretting mind, there's usually the, the restlessness is triggered by the mind thinking, overthinking stuff. I got this note from somebody on a retreat not so long ago. She said, I was fine before lunch, but now I have a monkey mind and a monkey body, and everyone's getting on my nerve. What is up with that? And that's what happens. Suddenly things start getting very agitating and irritating. We feel ungrounded. I just came across this cartoon uh, from Jill, and it's a a picture of somebody asleep at their desk. Maybe I should have read this when I was talking about sloth. It says, I wake up every morning torn between a desire to save the whales, attain enlightenment, visit the Dalai Lama, or go back to bed. (laughs) Makes it kind of hard to plan the day. So that can cause a lot of restlessness, the mind moving in that way. So we want to invite the mind to slow down. We want to invite the mind into the physical present. 
And the, as I said, the breath is really helpful with that, as is also giving the mind a really spacious container. So when, when you're, if you're with a wild animal, you don't put them into a small pen when they're very agitated. You give them a lot of room to run around like a horse in a pasture. So um, the, the obstacles that also come up a lot in the beginning retreat and maybe for the next you know, 20, 20 years of your life um, are more specifically around uh, the more deep-rooted qualities of uh, aversion and resistance and uh, towards, and I'm going to frame these in terms of uh, the near enemy and the far enemy of metta. So the far enemy of metta is hatred, is uh, aggression, is violence. And again, uh, part of the metta practice, part of the way it works, is that it, it will reveal, it will highlight that which is getting in the way of this practice of the heart from flowing. And it does that in a very beautiful, artful way. And this is most pronounced for, for most people when we spend a lot of time uh, wishing meta for ourselves. Because for many of us, that's the, the most challenging place. It triggers that, that awareness and that presence of self-hatred the lack of self-acceptance, the self-judgment. So rather than feeling warmth and kind and benevolent, we start to feel all the different ways that we uh, dislike ourselves, reject ourselves, uh, compare ourselves negatively. And so the, the voice of that often comes through the voice of the critic. And many of you spoke to that today in the groups the presence of that voice that is very happy to remind us of all the reasons why we're not worthy of love and all the reasons we've messed up and all the reasons why we're not good enough. And uh, Anybody here notice a critical voice today? Self-critical? And then, of course, it can turn out outwards and we can sit in the, ju- in the dining room and just happily judge everybody who comes in because of what they're wearing, the way they're walking, and who knows what else. Mother Teresa said, if you judge people, you have no time to love them. If you judge people, you have no time to love them. So the critic will arise in this, fo- in this form. Sometimes it arises in the form of uh, wisdom um, or disguised wisdom, often in the form of self-doubt. Who do you think you are to be doing this loving-kindness practice? We know what you're really like. You're not really compassionate. You're not worthy of matter. Yeah. And it's a voice we often listen to and they give a lot of authority to. And of course, the more authority we give it, the more stronger it gets. So one of the strategies for working with the critic that I think is most helpful um, is to have a sense of humor. Because if you don't laugh, it just ain't funny. Um, and so because, well, mindfulness is the essential tool, I think, working with anything. But 
Um, mindfulness, why mindfulness is so potent and powerful is because it allows us to see clear, clearly and that clarity allows us to disengage, allows us to disidentify. And normally we're very identified with the critic. Humor has the same function. It creates a sense, when we can, when we can take a step back, there's a sense of space around whatever it is we're looking at. There's a sense of uh, separation. We're not so enmeshed and embroiled. So this is a cartoon that I like to read a lot, which um, makes light of this tendency. And it's called, it's from a cartoon strip called Rhymes with Orange. And it's called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. And it could be written by any retreat meditator that I know. Choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. Like the yogi who's sitting really super, super mindful every sitting. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. It's a very popular meditation pastime. (laughs) So is this one. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint. Especially those people who share your last name. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And there's a picture of a woman getting a compliment. Hey, you look great. She's thinking, don't patronize me. (laughs) And lastly, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you'll always feel. Which, of course, is a setup for misery, because it's not true. So, you know, as, we, as you may know, the, the critic came to the Buddha in the form of Mara, the form of uh, ignorance and the voice of doubt in the night of his enlightenment. Who do you think you are to be sitting on the lotus throne of awakening? All the great enlightened ones in the past who have meditated. And the Buddha touched the earth and uh, summoned the earth as his witness that he was worthy to take that seat. So in a way, the meta practice is our way of touching the earth and saying, yes, I am here, I am alive, I am worthy to receive and to offer love. That I have goodness at the heart of my nature. And it's useful to to begin to distinguish between the voice of the critic and the judge and the voice of discernment and conscience, which are two very different things. We often mistake, we think we can't throw the critic out because then how will we discern? A discernment is a clear evaluation of something. A judgment is something that leaves us feeling deficient and worthless and shame. So notice when the judging judging is here, because it really undermines practice. I'd say it's one of the things that most undermines practice in in pretty much everybody I work with. So when that voice arises, you name it, just like we name other thoughts. Oh, judging, judging. (coughs) Judging is like that. Sometimes I will um, add a note and I'll say, thank you, that's really interesting. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Hmm. That's really helpful. Just a way to um, create a little space and a little humor, a little lightness. I also make it a point, and I I give this instruction a lot too, every time you hear yourself judging, inwardly or outwardly, you know, you're no good at meditation or whatever, I, I, I say, thank you, and may I be happy. Oh, but you're such a terrible teacher. Thank you, may I be peaceful. And after every judgment, just also add, 
uh, as, as a phrase, a metaphrase, which is what the meta does is we're creating uh, wholesome, positive neural pathways. So a lot of our thinking is often very negative and it's, it has developed very deep grooves. So we're, we're counteracting that pattern. And over time, you know, we will begin to see some shift in that. I know when I first started practicing a long time ago in the 80s, um, I had a wicked critic and a lot of self-judgment and um, self-hatred and uh, started doing the meta practice very early on and, and, and related to it, even though I found it difficult and it felt like it was a big iceberg block, a block of ice in my heart. Um, but over time, that softened and melted. didn't happen overnight. Practice, uh, these kind of changes rarely happen overnight, sometimes, but not always. And over the years, I've really come to cherish this practice because it really softens that, that sort of edifice, edifice of hardness and contraction and allows a sense of connection and friendliness. And it's just so much more accessible. And it's beautiful to see that. So, as I said, the, the, the obstacle of hatred goes inwards, it goes outwards. Um, I, had a, I worked with a student who enjoyed always having someone to hate in his life. He would sort of look around, and he didn't really have, he had a pretty, pretty harmonious life, but he just enjoyed having someone to feel antagonistic towards. But I don't know anybody who's really found happiness through hatred or found love through hatred or found connection through hatred or found belonging through hatred. So again, to not make an enemy out of an enemy, to not make an enemy out of any of these obstacles that arise, but to bring the spirit of curiosity. Oh, what's it like when my heart's contracted? What's it like when I feel separate? What's it like when I'm feeling judgmental? Because when we understand, the understanding is the seed for letting go. We don't let go until we really understand the process and understand that these things cause us suffering. This is from Dr. King. He said, when I speak of love, this whole idea is misunderstood. Agape is creative, understanding, redemptive redemptive goodwill for all men. Theologians would say that this is love of divine, love of the divine operating in the human heart. When one rises to love on this level, he loves every man. He rises to the point of loving the person who does the evil deed but not the deed that the person does. So this is the far enemy of metta. And then the near enemy um, is um, also a very familiar experience and one that's worth speaking to. Um, the, the, the last main hindrance or, or, uh, that I haven't spoken to is, is the hindrance of desire. But in, in the practice of metta, it comes up more as this uh, hindrance of um, the quality of love that has strings, 
love that has attachments, love that has some demand in it. So one of my friends uh, has a beautiful um, definition of metta. He says, I want everything for you, but nothing from you. I want everything for you, but nothing from you. And this, this, this near enemy, near obstacle of, of love is, um, is that I want something from you. I will love you. I will be kind to you. But I want something back. I want appreciation. I want love. I want acknowledgement, something. And as we know, that feels very different. When someone gives us open-handedly their love, it's a very beautiful generosity of their heart. When it has strings, it, doesn't, it feels sticky. Yes, um, uh, what's, the, what's the thing when you... Um, Velcro, yes. It's love with Velcro. Velcro love. Um, so I was once coming here to teach, and I was in the car listening to the radio, and there was, it was just before Valentine's Day, as it always is, which is always ironic. Uh, which talk about sentimental love with attachment. Valentine's is you know, the, the epitome of that, in a way. Um, the Hallmark version of it, anyway. And I was listening to this, this, the, ad, the ads on the radio, and uh, the, the person was saying, um, you know, if you really love your partner, what would be a great gift is get them a, a, a voucher for plastic surgery. And they went on for all the different ways, all the different kinds of surgery that you could get in this Valentine's special offer. And I'm like, that sounds pretty conditional to me. <laughs> I don't think the, <laughs> the partner is going to be very happy about that <laughs> gesture of love. <clears throat> so as we know, that the, the quality of love without strings is, is a precious thing in the world. And so metta gives us an intimation of that, of that possibility, of tasting of that. So that's why we, um, you know, we're careful when we choose who it is that we uh, cultivate metta for, whether it's benefactor or friend particularly, to see if we can find someone where there isn't so much that, uh, that sort of um, sticky attachment where we can get a sense of that, the, the, the purity and the, 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 the pure giving of this quality, uh, so we can start to taste it and really sense it in ourselves. And I haven't really spoken much about the quality of doubt, and I just want to give, give you know, as I said, the doubt often arises as the critic. Um, but to pay attention to this hindrance, because it's also uh, something that can really undermine your practice. In the meta practice, I see it mostly coming as self-doubt. Sometimes it can be doubt about this practice. Well, this isn't any good. I'd rather do, you know, Vipassana or Tonglen or some Tibetan thing or yoga. Or, um, but often it's turned inwards and it's doubting our own capacity. And as the Buddha said on more than one occasion, which I like to remember, he said, if I, if I didn't think it was possible, I wouldn't ask you to do this practice. So each one of us has the capacity, has innately within us 
this quality of metta, this quality of kind-heartedness, quality of friendliness. If we look to our lives and our experience, we can see many, many examples of when we've expressed that, when we felt that. So when we're sitting and, and, and we're in the practice and, and our heart feels like a, a wall of stone and we feel unworthy or we feel unable to connect with that, see if you can call to mind something sometime in the past where you can, where you can feel some connection with your, with your goodness, some connection with... Uh, some act of generosity, some act of kindness. And one of the proximate causes for metta is to reflect on the goodness or the good qualities of the person that we're generating metta for. And that can be particularly true with ourselves. So sometimes we need to start for a few moments and just to reflect, uh, what are the good qualities? What, what I can call something to mind that allows me to connect. Oh, yes. Or maybe I can put myself, as, as Sharon showed today in the, in the, the metta practice, to put yourself into the shoes of a benefactor or a good friend and say, and how would they see you? you know? They see, they don't believe what your critic's telling you. They have a whole other uh, assessment of who you are and, and why they like you and why they're your friend. So, so sometimes it means stepping out of our own limited self-definition. So I want to say, uh, there's many other things I could say, but I want to just speak to one last thing, which is um, to remember also the meta practice is, a, is, a, is an attitude practice. It's an attitude in how we orient towards experience, how we orient towards the present moment, how we orient towards ourselves. So whatever arises in this time here, as well as generating the, this intention of meta through the phrases, it's also about how we're meeting each moment how we're meeting ourselves when our knees are hurting, when we're tired, when we're so frustrated we can't say another phrase, when we're um, awake in the middle of the night because we can't sleep because of insomnia. How do you meet this moment? So it, I, I hold that as a, as a question, as like a koan for myself. How do I bring a quality of kindness to this moment? What would that look like? What would that look like to bring that to the person I'm sitting next to at the dining table? Not in, not in terms, terms of doing any action, but just in terms of how I'm holding the, the, the presence and the space of people here. And particularly when we're in, we're in struggle or strife and we're suffering, how do we hold ourselves that's kind? You know, Sylvia Borstein, who I've taught, uh, met a, a retreats with a bunch she often uses this phrase when she's startled and, and, and struggling. She, the first phrase that she'll use from her meta practice is, oh, sweetheart, oh, sweetheart, you're upset. Oh, it's okay, it's going gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna to pass. And that's, that's the way her kindness meets that moment. So it may not be, oh, sweetheart for you, but it might be something like, oh, ow, ow. Hearing the critic bashing us again, ow, that hurts. That might be the way you meet yourself kindly.
Okay, so let's sit together for a few moments. Again, just taking a moment to notice what attitude of heart and mind you're bringing to this moment, to yourself. And I close with a poem from Daniel Mead. If you would grow to your best self, be patient and not demanding, accepting, not condemning, nurturing, not withholding, self-marveling, not belittling, gently guiding, not pushing and punishing. For you are more sensitive than you know. Mankind is tough as war, yet delicate as flowers. We can endure agonies, but open fully only to warmth and light. And our need to grow is fragile as a fragrance, dispersed by storms of will, returning only when the storms are still. So accept and respect, attend your sensitivity. A flower cannot be open with a hammer. So we'll have about 30 minutes for walking and then we'll have some sitting and chanting. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.